Hello everyone, we hope you're keeping well and staying safe. Welcome to this latest instalment from GTR's official podcast channel, this time reflecting on the GTR MENA 2020 event which took place in February, which I'm sure for many will seem much longer ago. The world has of course changed in many ways since then, but before the implications of COVID-19 took hold, this 800 plus gathering of leading trade finance professionals had much to discuss when considering a whole range of issues impacting on the MENA market, from the region's role as a hub for trade, to the many ambitious infrastructure programs and national visions taking place across various countries. For this podcast, we've selected highlights from four distinctly different sessions, giving a varied flavour of some of the key themes that were addressed. One of the key themes for 2020's programme was a more diverse and inclusive lineup of speakers, an industry-wide issue well covered by GTR, with strong focus on the importance of creating a more conducive environment for entrepreneurs and female entrepreneurs in particular. Our first highlighted session featured Dr. Karen Remo, founder and CEO of New Perspective Media, along with Laura Lane, Global President of Public Affairs at UPS, both key supporters of the She Trades Initiative on Women's Economic Empowerment. To kick things off, first Dr. Karen and then Laura considered the opportunities for setting up businesses in the region. In the Middle East specifically, and more particularly in the UAE, it's very, very conducive for opportunities right now, especially with Expo 2020 happening this year. It's very exciting for all of us. But not only that, because it starts from the leadership. So the business is very much welcome in here. Uh, The red tape has been caught. Women are empowered. Uh, 48% of the labor force are women. And 50% of the parliament are women compared to 23% in the worldwide average. So in terms of gender, demographics, and and different kinds of opportunities, uh, the UAE is very much wide open for business. I was going to pick up on that, and I was going to say I think leadership matters, and um, we find the government here to be very welcoming of all ranges of business because UPS depends on being able to partner with all of our customers and take them anywhere in the world, and we have sizable operations here now to be able to export and assist with freight operations anywhere and everywhere in the world. And so when I think about it, I think about how the governments have made it easier to be able to establish businesses here, get the licenses. But what's equally important is they've also made it easy on the export side and the import side. So the customs procedures here are uh, improving significantly and um, setting a really good model for around the world um, because trade often gets stopped at borders if the customs processes aren't uh, ones that facilitate the movement of goods. And um, the UAE has done an exceptional job here. I would say, though, that in the region, there's a lot of work still be done to really really empower more women to engage in trade. There's a lot of discriminatory barriers that exist in the laws and the regulations that really need to be changed. And um, we're kind of excited about the efforts governments are undertaking to make those changes. The conversation continued with some fascinating insights and analogies offered by Dr. Karen on the importance of competitive advantage of getting noticed. We live in a highly globalized world where international trade and international finance makes it appear so easy that, you know, you can reach your target market or you can reach your customer in just one click of a button. Um, But I'm not going to burst your your bubble. Uh, What if I tell you that thinking that really the world is one big market for you could be a big fallacy, could be actually uh, a source of failure? 
Why is that so? Because we're thinking right now in the heights of the age of fast food where every hamburger will satisfy its craving. Well, it won't. Like, for example, even McDonald's, which is uh, available in 119 countries, you would know that in Singapore, they offer nasi lemak, a hamburger chicken patty flavored with coconut uh, milk, with cucumber, fried egg, and caramelized onion. And then also in India, McDonald's offer, I mean, there's a lot of uh, friends from India here where you have uh, what we call the makalu uh, tiki. So having said that, one burger doesn't satisfy all cravings. So to, question, to, to answer your question, Laura, is how do you get noticed in this highly competitive world? In the UAE, for example, we have 32,000 uh, new licenses on the first eight months of 2019, uh, bringing up to the tally of 572,000 companies in the UAE until August 2019. How do you compete in that landscape? And you do that by applying simple theory. Like, for example, how did you make your wife say yes to you? You know, just recently it's Valentine's. You become noticeable if you notice your wife first, if you notice your customer first. And when I mean noticing, that means more than gender or demographics or more than just the purchasing power, is that you go much, much deeper. You see, in 1910, uh, Henry Ford popularized the idea of mass production. In 1920, you have the mass communication. And no wonder because of the word mass. So for 100 years, our decision has been being made by the manufacturers and media, but not anymore. Now, customers are taking ownership of what they want depending on who they are. So how do you now know who your customers are and what are their likes and dislikes? So you have to go deep inside, and thankfully, we do have the technology to help us. And so my advice to the trade and businesses is to look at the two Bs, primarily in media and marketing, and that's big data and behavioral science. Big data will tell you the aggregate things on what they do, what they like, unwittingly and unwittingly, because you don't really know yourself. You know, AI knows much more than you when you look at all the trends or what you've been looking on social media and digital. So big data is the what. The more important is the why. It's the behavioral science. We have an example, Ted and Teddy, sorry, Tom and Tim, for example. They're both 40 years old both Asians, both exporters, and both earning $10,000 a month. But believe me, both of them will have two opposite preferences most of the time. So the challenge for businesses, trade exporters and businesses, is to find out exactly what your client wants and giving it to them. That's how you get noticed. The final part of the conversation saw Laura, fresh from attending the Global Women's Forum taking place the day before, address the question of why there are not more women engaging in trade about it, there's so many um, possibilities in terms of empowering women to engage in trade. The reality is that only one in five um, exporting firms are women-owned, and so when we're looking at that, we're saying to ourselves, well, why is it that there's not more women engaging in trade? I mean, that's a world of trading opportunity for a logistics company like us. And so we started doing the analysis and research um, and partnering with women-owned businesses to understand the challenges that they were facing 
and then started tailoring the programs to help them um, be able to export their products anywhere and everywhere in the world. And we've uh, taken a three-prong approach. Um, we started first with capacity building. So we looked at some of the um, skills that needed to be developed, some of the tools that women-owned businesses may have lacked, and partnered with different organizations to pull together some amazing programs. Um, we also um, have done uh, uh, market access workshops where we've partnered with uh, She Trades, for example, the ITC, and identified what products women were developing and identifying the places in which they could export to. So those real market access opportunities for them. Um, and then third, we've been uh, really trying to champion the need for the legal foundations for women to engage in trade, because believe it or not, in a lot of places around the world, and I touched on it at the opening, there's a lot of barriers to women owning property or being able to um, uh, have a bank account or access ba basic financing or be able to travel freely around a country or across a border. Um, and when you can't establish a business, you can't grow it and you can't sell it anywhere because you're restricted on your movements or um, you know the kinds of accounts you can open, uh, you can't really flourish. So UPS is really investing in these kinds of partnerships with she trades, with Dubai exports here, with a number of countries to help the women get the skills, identify the market access, and then have that strong legal foundation in which to stand on. And we're pretty excited about all that partnership because um, like I said, there's a world of opportunity for these women-owned businesses, and we think that if we're helping them identify the challenges but overcome those challenges and engage in trade, maybe they'll ship UPS. Our next session focused on preparations for Dubai Expo 2020, dubbed the world's greatest show by its organisers, though now likely to be laid into 2021 as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and its potential implications for trade. We first heard from Sunil Vitil, Regional Head of Trade and Receivables Finance for MENA at HSBC, and James Binns, Managing Director and Global Head of Trade and Working Capital at Barclays, both of whom look forward with tremendous positivity to the potential implications of the Expo. Very positive on uh, Expo. In, in the run-up to the Expo, we had seen a tremendous amount of uh, construction activities around that, especially around the infrastructure uh, and then we've seen our, our trade volumes uh, actually reflect that as well and on, on the back of that over the last three, four, five years. Uh, obviously, once the export starts, um, that, that would be largely service-driven. You'll have uh, probably more tourists coming in, visitors coming in, hospitality. Uh, so a, we're hoping the services aspects of trade improving during the six months uh, of the export itself. Obviously, there's a legacy aspect to the expo. We, we're positive about that as well. Uh, there's a huge plan by the government to, to reuse these facilities into a, into a multi-year uh, program. So they're looking at, over the next 10 years, uh, generating a value of uh, close to $10, $12 billion. Start historically for a second and think where Dubai has come from. Dubai is, uh, by definition, a trading nation. They started with pearls and um, you know, regional trade. And in the 70s, they built um, the largest dry dock which, in the world, which was double the size of the largest ship still afloat. They built the Jebel Ali port. They had vision. And as a result of that vision, this is what you have today. And what Dubai has done is created this incredible logistics network and infrastructure, which beats anything within um, and the UAE, obviously, within a 1,000-kilometer radius. So it's created this platform for trade. 
And I think for me, Expo 2020 is the next stage in launching that platform, publicizing everything that the UAE has achieved um, and, and really showcasing that to the world. So I'm extremely positive for regional trade. Elsewhere in the discussion, we heard from Svetlana Skerpnik, General Director of the trading and consultancy brokerage firm Cojex, who was asked about the potential legacy of Expo and its wider potential implications for Dubai as a trade hub. Expo 2020 is a chance for uh, Dubai, uh, UAE and a larger Middle East market is to create awareness and to create publicity around this region and to confirm to the world what we already know that Dubai is a great place to do business and for those who didn't know it, uh, they have a chance to visit, uh, they have a chance to interact with international counterparts. Uh, there are uh, a lot of government initiatives, uh, free trade zones, non-trade zones. There is a lot of uh, now uh, initiative to kind of uh, synchronize uh, the business licensing and regulation across the UAE to level the ground a bit. Yeah, so to, to see what's like before most of the investors would come to, uh, to freight, tree freight tree zones. Right, free zone, sorry, <laughs> it's a bit early. Uh, and uh, now you have chance to have a diable licensing in some of the areas. Uh, you have chance to access certain industries and markets that were off limits for expats. Uh, this is changing as well. Uh, we have a lot of uh, business growth initiatives, uh, a lot of initiatives to um, uh, go from the primary commodity-related economy to more service and sharing economy, and uh, uh, the government in the region is supportive of this, uh, bringing investors, uh, bring the knowledge and know-how. And I think the next six months that the expo will run uh, will, uh, will uh, have a positive impact. Of course, uh, entrepreneurs do have to seize these opportunities, not just sit you know, and watch <laughs> and, and say hi, hello. Uh, there are opportunities and you have to be actively engaged to identify them and to, to capitalize on them. So that's what we do. Uh, based here, uh, we can consult companies uh, uh, on the best strategy and uh, the people still come to Dubai. They still see an opportunities. As I said, the ease of doing business is one of them. Um, I think for the Middle East, uh, Dubai is still the best place to be based in and uh, Expo will hopefully reinforce that statement and uh, uh, create a lot of traffic of not only tourists but a lot of business people as all Expos done and across the years it's been an international success for more than 100 years and I, I do think that Dubai will not be an exception in this. Also contributing to the conversation was Sinan Ozchan, Senior Executive Officer for the UAE of Maersk Trade Finance, who was asked about the digital space and how that is changing things. scale and the uh, complexity of the global trade is huge. Uh, so with the separate flow of goods and money, with complex relationships, it has uh, information asymmetry, it has limited transparency, um, uh, paper-intensive, risky environment. In fact, uh, OECD estimates that 15% of the value of the goods traded globally are of hidden costs. And most of it is due to manual processes. But we are not doing business, obviously, uh, as we did 10 years ago. And we will not do business as we do today from 10 years from now. So there is um, from uh, warehousing management to ERP solutions, logistics, procurement, there is a 
continuous uh, innovation and digital integration. In fact, we can't really afford remaining in the past. In the past, we've seen uh, many banks and carriers uh, alike who thought the scale is the key. But when the markets fluctuated, they only found thems themselves overexposed. In fact, uh, in 2008, when the bubble burst, they did not find uh, Lehman Brothers, who was uh, just thinking about innovation, but they found the bank which is operating based on the principles that it developed in 1980s. Similarly, when they finished the autopsy of the Hanjin, the Korean shipping line, they will not find a carrier with full of innovation. They will find a desperate fight to retain Serico. So um, uh, rethinking the traditional ways ahead is, is the key. Uh, similarly, FedEx, UPS, DHL, these are expanding their truck, train, uh, and, and air transport networks and threatening the business of freight forwarders. Now Amazon is coming into the mix. Amazon is bypassing the intermediaries and in fact uh, expanding its transportation network in China and worldwide. So I saw a quote in a uh, note in uh, Bloomberg. Uh, it was saying Amazon will uh, remove all the other uh, intermediaries including FedEx, UPS and DHL. Next up we tackle one of the most prevalent industry-wide issues in the market at present that of digital disruption and its transformative nature on what has historically been a traditional paper-based industry. With current lockdowns and restrictions on movement throwing this into even sharper focus, we can expect much more progress on the issue going forward. But in terms of the discussion held in Dubai, a varied lineup of speakers sought to address some of the key talking points. First up, we had this exchange between Honey Garg, Head of Trade and Supply Chain at Swift, Saeed Karoum Zaim, Head of Trade and Transaction Banking for UAE and MENA at Standard Chartered, and Staini Pulalikal, Regional Treasurer at GE. We have seen, this is the seventh year in 2019, that the volumes for documentary trade finance reduced by about 4% for LCs and grew for a change for guarantees by 5%. At the same time, it is estimated that supply chain finance or open account finance is growing at a much faster pace. And a lot of this is blamed on the fact that documentary trade is very complex, very document heavy, not digitized. As a result, we also see a massive shift in the level of investment in digitization of trade finance. In the last panel, we heard uh, that there is a huge amount of interest in next three to four years to digitize most of the trade finance. So one of the questions that arises is, what does it mean for banks and corporates or fintechs to be digitized? I think uh, traditionally speaking, uh, digitization was restricted to us, the bank, receiving instruction via digital channel. I think that's been there for a while, uh, and it has various levels of success if you can see forward. I think what now digitization means is to look at the end-to-end -end spectrum of the client uh, business and trade cycle coming into play. I think from our point of view in Standard Chartered, I think the e-initiation part has been there for a while, but now we're really looking at to see where the clients are going and what is their digital journey looking like and how we can sort of embed ourselves in that process. The whole concept of digitization would mean different for different corporates. For GE, it's the end-to-end -end cycle. <clears throat> from the time we originate with our customers till the time we are paying our suppliers and also management of that cash eventually when we receive from either our customers or we pay to our suppliers. So uh, the scale is end-to-end. -end. That's number one. Now, if I look back from a digitization perspective on you know, GE, 
we've got different product verticals, right? What we issue to our customers, open account transactions, supply chain, dock lock. So there are different product verticals within trade, and each product vertical has a different uh, percentage from a digitization standpoint. So for example, if I have to look at the area of bank guarantee issuances, I am at you know, 80, 85% digitization there you know, with our own in-house platform. But if I look at DocLock, I'm probably at around four, five percent in that range. So there is clearly a great area for us to improve. Do we as a corporate see value and you know investment of time around such aspects? Clearly, yes. You know, we see the need to focus on cash better to improve efficiencies. So this is a prime focus for us. We are not proud to say that we are at four percent. We are looking for areas to improve. One of the key conversation points for those of us new to these disruptive concepts is differentiating between digitization and digitalization. Here, Nadine Meza, co-founder and CMO of the tech company Sawa, sought to demystify this, also explaining a bit about how a fintech works. What is digitalization? It's basically transforming your organization to adapt to any current or future challenges brought on by digital technology. For us, Sarwa was completely born um, in the cloud, so from the get-go we are a tech company, but that doesn't mean that everyone has to do the same. It's not about transforming and becoming a full-on tech company, but it's just about adapting the right technologies to make your processes faster, um, to make it more efficient, to make it more cost-effective. So if you want to think about it, you can think about it in terms of uh, the four pillars. First is internal organization, so everything that has to do with how you operate internally. To us, we use everything that's CRM-based, automation-based, so we try to remove a lot of the workload from our team. Even though we're a hybrid model, so we are a robo-advisor, but at the same time, we do have um, advisors that can talk to clients whenever it's needed and answer any questions. At the same time, it's going beyond and looking into your product itself. So to us, it's about having everything done online. From A to Z. Mobile phone penetration rates and the popularity of technology amid young people is deemed a key factor in the evolution and future uptake of digitization. To emphasize her point, Nadine used an analogy regarding two well-known technology companies and their differing approaches to growth. You need to understand your market. You need to look where they are. If they're on TikTok or if they're on Snapchat, then you need to go after them. If they're on magazines and newspaper, then you need to go after them. What we know is the new generation is really fully digital, and that's how you know we can access them, is by going um, after all these platforms that we know they're on and trying to incorporate our offering and our products within their daily life. So at the end of the day, um, technology has always been evolving, and we see it currently exponentially evolving. Um, I, I have little kids, and I'm trying as much as you try to shelter them, but it is something that started school. It's something that's part of their life, and it's becoming more and more part of their daily life. So at the end of the day, uh, you can take, for example, um, Nokia and Apple. And at the time where Nokia was a leader in its market, and they had the top tech people and engineers, which was the same case for Apple, but the only difference that they did is Apple actually created the shift in the demand in the market, while Nokia just said, okay, we know that we have a good market share and we're comfortable with that. Apple went a step ahead and they really analyzed their market and saw what can we do to be at the forefront of it. And that's literally what digitization or incorporating tech into your company can do to your company is 
to remain at the top of your market and ahead of competition. Our final highlighted session seems particularly prescient in the current climate, focusing on the role of China both globally and more specifically in the MENA region. Whilst we do not yet know how current events will play out on a geostrategic level, the situation in terms of Chinese engagement in the MENA region was already a fascinating one. Rebecca Harding, CEO of Corios Technologies and author of Gaming Trade, sought to summarise. I think it's fair to say it's really hard to understate the importance of China to the Middle East. Um, imports worth $146 billion in 2018, exports $169 billion. The total value of the trade finance market, just bank intermediated trade finance, is around $220 billion. That's a huge amount of, of, of money. China now represents around twice the level of trade of the United States. So, in actual fact, there's been quite a shift over the last five years, in particular, um, between trade with the United States and trade with China. And although this growth has been relatively slow, a lot of that is more to do with oil prices and to do with general economic conditions than it is to the importance of China itself. So trade growth in terms of imports has been just 1% annualised, but it's been growing at a steady rate over a period of time since 2013. And of course, we have to remember that that's a period of time as well when the global economy hasn't grown at a rate that perhaps we would have all expected. And a 0.3% growth, annualised growth in exports. Now, bear in mind that the biggest export to China at the moment is obviously mineral fuels from the region, if there's growth over a period of time, given the drop in mineral fuel prices, then that suggests that there really is an increase in trade. Now, as I've said, China took over from the US as a major trading partner in 2009. So just at the end of the financial crisis and just in the post-financial crisis era, China has become more important than the US to the region. Growth has also been faster, but what's interesting about that is that growth isn't faster in the post-2009 period. It was actually between 2002 and 2014. So during that whole period of globalization, when China was coming into the World Trade Organization, that's where China was really putting its foot on the accelerator, and not actually more recently. And we have to look at the relationship between China and the Middle East now in terms of actually the bigger strategic game that's being played globally. So the Middle East for China represents an important access to uh, Europe. It's an important part of Belt and Road. It's an important part as well of energy security as well. So I've just put a Chinese, uh, a Chinese game of Go up there um, to, to suggest that this is all about strategic influence and security as well. When talking about China in a business context, it seems you're never far away from the issue of Belt and Road, the country's ambitious infrastructure programme taking in multiple countries on a route from east to west over land and sea. Our final contribution comes from Dr Robert Besling, Executive Director of Ex-Africa, who addressed the impact of BRI both on the region and specifically on the potential implications for trade. BRI is absolutely crucial to this entire conversation. Belt and Road underpins everything here, both for the MENA region and for the Africa region. But there's a bit of a misconception going on here as well. The misconception being this is just infrastructure. Huge project finance driven directly by Chinese state-owned entities, uh, Chinese ECAs, Chinese banks, etc. Um, 
And if, you, if you're not Chinese and you have vested interests in these, in these countries, in the Gulf or in Africa, it can be scary. This is a hugely competitive uh, new force underlined by hundreds of billions of dollars in new ports, new airports, roads, etc., done directly government to government. But that's just the start. The actual real opportunity is trade. Um, and that's where, broader, beyond just the government-to-government -government relations and building these mega-projects, uh, private industries, African companies, Gulf companies, or even further afield, can benefit from this infrastructure being put in place. I'll give you an example. Rebecca mentioned the uh, uh, trade flows dipping over the past few years for various different reasons. But if you look within Africa itself, a number of countries... Uh, are some of the fastest growing economies in the world. And that's mostly because they have very diversified bases. They have more reliance on soft commodities rather than oil prices or metals, which have taken a dip. And interestingly, most of those soft commodities are actually traded right here through Dubai, no matter of their end destination. So this is a very easy way to look at BRI filtering into existing trade patterns and actually eventually creating a much greater opportunity for trade and investment and actually benefiting many more diversified African economies and economies in the Gulf as well. That wraps up this latest GTR podcast, perhaps the last one made, or at least partly made, during what seems like to be remembered as the old normal. There'll be future podcasts following over the coming weeks as we reflect on the findings of various GTR webinars taking place in lieu of physical events, as well as preview future conferences and how they in turn may reflect on the times we are presently living in. Until then, take care and stay safe.